0: the hell is going on what's really going on we said what the hell happened you don't have to know what the hell is on it Did they see what's going on i don't know what's going on what is going on we must find out what is going on
1: hi i'm danielle Fletka.
2: i'm mark Thiessen.
1: welcome to our podcast All the more apt for 2020. What the hell is going on? Mark, what the hell is going on now?
2: We are less than three weeks away from the most important election in American history. And none of us know what the hell is going to happen. That's what's going on, Danny.
1: It's true. I mean, even with all of those, you know, my Democratic friends who feel really solid and my Republican friends who are biting their nails, I got to say, nobody feels like this is going to be... An election that reflects well on our country.
2: Well, that's an understatement. <laughs> no doubt. I mean, look, you would think that as we got closer to the election, that things would get less weird, and less bizarre, and more normal. And it hasn't. I mean, on the Trump side, we had that debate performance a few weeks ago that was just you know, if you were a swing voter who one of these, these 20% of Trump's 2016 voters who said, I voted for him, but I don't like him. You know, you basically just looked at that and said, I'm done. No effort at all to win over these persuadable or, or marginal voters at all, in fact, pushing them away. But then you've got on the other hand, Joe Biden, who, you know, as we've had a long episode on this topic, you know, the court packing is on the ballot right now. And Joe Biden basically, refuses to tell the American people what he's gonna do.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I think that's right. Look, I, I have been actually surprised and gratified because this is one of the things to me that is most important about what's on the ballot this year, and that is our institutions. I feel like our institutions are what helped us survive the Trump years. And for me, the notion that our institutions would be upended is what is frightening about a democratic across-the-board victory here. Notwithstanding the fact that Trump has challenged our institutions, I think they've actually remained quite resilient. But it is really interesting to see that this court-packing issue is something that has hit a nerve for the Dems. So what we've seen is that I saw Chris Coons, and and he's he is a senator from Delaware. He's a man who whose intellect i have no doubt smart guy thoughtful guy yeah he's a very big partisan but he, you know he's got some intellectual integrity i thought and he said the real court packing is the nomination and you know soon to be confirmation of amy coney barrett and i was just like dude what that's how worried you are that you're willing to do that sort of use that pretzel logic that's incredible
2: I mean, you know, this is the reality is, look, filling a vacancy on the Supreme Court is not court packing. Court packing has a very clear definition that originated with FDR in the 1930s, which is adding seats to the Supreme Court. So they may not like the way the Republicans handled the vacancies of Scalia's seat and now Ginsburg's seat. They may not have thought it was fair that they that Republicans didn't give Merrick Garland an up or down vote. They may think it's unfair that they're now giving uh, Amy Coney Barrett the vote that they didn't give Merrick Garland, all of that is legitimate, but it ain't court packing. It's uh, using the powers that you have been given by the voters in a constitutional way to fulfill your constitutional duties. And it's unfortunate for Democrats that Justice Ginsburg uh, passed away when she did. Anthony Kennedy, you know, was 81 when he retired, and he decided that he was going to retire when there was a Republican president who was going to pick somebody uh, who he approved of for his seat. Well, you know, in 2009. Uh, Ginsburg got her cancer diagnosis during the, at the start of the Obama presidency, and she could have retired during Obama's presidency and been replaced by somebody she approved of, but she decided to continue serving until she was 87 and roll the dice that she would outlive Donald Trump. And, uh, you know, it didn't work out. She could have had a say in her successor. The Democrats have no one to blame but themselves. The left has no one to blame for themse- but themselves for this situation. And the idea that you would then turn around in a huff and... Do something that has not been done in 150 years and literally un- politicize the institution of the Supreme Court and not even be honest with the voters about the fact that you're doing it, that you're planning to do it. Everybody knows they're planning to do it. It's, it's just bizarre to me.
1: Well, uh, it's not really bizarre. It's, it's just politics and the state that politics have come to. But coming back to the election, I mean, just watching this. I saw, we keep talking about headlines we saw, and of course there's almost nothing happening in the world that isn't dominated by the elections, but I saw this this headline that said, if Donald Trump wanted to lose the election, would he be doing anything differently? (laughs) I thought thought that that really encapsulated 2020 for me because he has literally snatched a defeat from the jaws of victory at every turn, whether it was with his COVID diagnosis and then leaping out and saying, I'm cured, like some sort of third world freaking dictator, or his behavior at that first debate, or his decision to punt on the second debate. I mean, we could take the whole rest of the podcast and just talk about Donald Trump's missed opportunities.
2: Oh, no doubt, he's either a madman or a genius. <laughs> we're, gonna, we're gonna find out I, on Monday. And, you know, I have I mean, a
1: bet I, I've got a bet if anyone wants to reach out to us on whether he's a madman or a genius,
2: or maybe both, <laughs> he could be, he could turn out to be both. But I mean, you know, if he wins the election, he's a genius because what it means is that. He knew that this was going to be a base election and that his entire campaign was built on putting, turning out his base, energizing his base. Those people are going to walk over broken glass to vote for him come hell or high water. And if, if it wins, uh, we were all wrong in terms of, you know, the advice we were giving him about, you know, moderate your tone and, uh, and you know, be more presidential. You know, those things have just exhausted a lot of voters. And those are votes he could have won. Maybe he'll win anyway. But I think that that was just a big mistake.
1: I, listen, you know, you and I agree wholeheartedly about this. The other thing that Donald Trump has done, look, I mean, look who we're talking about. We're, we're only talking about Donald Trump. The fact of the matter is that Joe Biden is, I think, questionably competent. And a lot of my Democratic friends have gotten very angry with me for saying so, but I've seen it, I've watched it. And because I've known the man for as long as I've known the man, I see it all the more. I know people don't wanna believe it, but let me tell you folks, when people say to me, some really, really, you know, people who who I like, I respect and I trust say to me, I'd rather vote for senile Joe Biden And wasn't Ronald Reagan senile too? That's when I know people know that man is no longer all there. And yet Donald Trump has managed to make even that a non-factor in his absolute circus. It's true, Trump has just has all of the things that we've said over the course of this podcast and that you just said now, but the reality is he is not running against a mainstream Democrat, Joe Biden, 1995. He is running against the Joe Biden who is hanging there as the facade for the AOC, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Democratic Party, and Donald Trump has managed to drown that out.
0: Yep,
2: you know, it's fascinating If you look at what's happened in 2020 and it just every week, you think nothing more can happen and it happens. But, you know, (laughs) it's true. We've had the worst pandemic since 1918, the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, the worst racial unrest since the 1960s. Donald Trump shouldn't even be in range. A normal president wouldn't even be in range of winning an election with all that happening on his watch. Then you find the Gallup poll comes out and despite the worst pandemic since 1918, despite the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, despite the worst racial unrest since the 1960s, 56% of Americans say, yes, I'm better off now than I was four years ago. You know, 56% of Americans. So with that number, I don't know that there's ever been an election where, where a majority of Americans say they're better off than they were four years ago, and yet the incumbent will lose.
1: Only this guy could lose in that he's, circumstance. That
2: elected, but he's only got 41.7% of the vote in the real clear politics. So 56% of Americans say they're better off under Donald Trump, but only 417 are going to vote for him. That is a gap of voters that is inexcusable.
1: Among the questions that really are on people's minds are are, are the polls wrong you know is everybody gonna turn out is Donald Trump the winner he thinks he is that Ivanka knows he is or is he in fact going to go down to ignominious defeat so we have the perfect person on with us today to talk about the polls and what's likely to happen we really hope he brought his crystal ball Tom bevan is the co-founder and the president of real Clear politics that's the site that everybody looks at for every single poll in addition to uh, overseeing the editor Trail staff. He also writes for RCP and for a number of other publications. He you see him on TV all the time. He hosts a weekly radio show in Chicago. He is uh, he is a huge resource and he's with us today.
2: Well, Tom, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you. You had an interesting point that you made on Twitter and on Brett Bayer's podcast. You said that you know it's interesting that Biden has widened his lead nationally over Trump. Uh, how's he doing in the battleground states
0: and? What do, you, what do you think that means for election day? I mean, this is shaping up to be a really weird election. For that, That's one of the reasons. There are a couple other. We could talk about those in more detail. But yeah, I mean, he's right where he was before. In fact, Trump is about a half a percentage point better on average in these battleground states than he was four years ago. And Biden has seen his leads go up in some of these battleground states. There are a lot of similarities to 2016, but there are a lot of differences, Right. The race in 2016 bounced back and forth between you know seven or eight points nationally, and then closed down to would close down to two or three. We haven't seen that. It's been a much more stable race this time around, particularly at the national level. So you know it's interesting to see how this race is shaping up, but definitely um, I think Trump is still competitive in those battleground states.
1: I have a question I want to ask you about something you tweeted about uh, a few weeks ago. But first, let me follow up on Mark's questions. I mean. Isn't the mitigating circumstance now that the polls were so badly sampled during the Clinton versus Trump election and that now the argument, at least that pollsters are making to us, is that they have a much better grip on the population than they did then?
0: Uh, I mean, yes and no. I'm not so sure. I mean, first of all, the national polls weren't bad at all in 2016. And even some of the state numbers weren't, you know, I've talked about this repeatedly over time. I mean... My contention is the polls in 2016 weren't nearly as bad as the pundits, right? You had a situation where, uh, you know, we had Trump winning Florida, we had Trump winning North Carolina in our final real clear politics uh, electoral map, which is based on our averages. The last poll we put in Pennsylvania had Trump leading. The average there was under 2%. The last poll we put in Michigan had Trump leading by one point you know, and obviously Wisconsin's the one everybody talks about. Right. And, you know, that was a situation where I think the Marquette university law school poll, which is sort of the quote unquote gold standard, you know, they wrapped up that poll, I think almost a week before the election took place. So, but it was, it was really the pundits in 2016. I mean, you literally couldn't turn on your TV or your computer or your radio without hearing, you know, someone say with this sort of faux statistical certainty, right. It's 92.46% chance that Hillary Clinton has this race in the bag. And these were not you know, just cranks on the internet. This is David Plouffe, who was on ABC News in September saying it was a 100% chance that she's going to win this election. This is you know, Sam Wang of Princeton University, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I think the problem in 2016, there's definitely data to suggest that Hillary Clinton did have that race well in hand. But you know, I think if, you, if that was your sort of preconceived narrative that you filtered that data through, Right. But the reality is that there were other data points that suggested that that race was very competitive. Right. Very competitive. And that's why I think a lot of the pundits you know, sort of missed that. Now, to your point, Daniel, it's like, yes, there was a I think one of the big misses that pollsters did not account for education. They did not account for the sort of the rural swing in some of those upper Midwestern states. And that's why Trump overperformed, particularly in a place like Wisconsin. Do they have it in hand this time? Some are waiting by education, some are not. There's still some indication that there might be some shy Trump votes out there. You know, we'll have to see. But the problem for for Donald Trump is right now, you know, it would have to be a very significant amount.
2: It was fascinating. There was a Gallup poll that came out that said 56 percent of Americans say they're better off now than they were four years ago. Forty nine percent say they agree with Trump on the issues compared to 46% for Biden. Yet in your RCP average, he's basically only getting 42% of the vote. That means there is a significant number of people and Americans who agree with Donald Trump, like his stewardship of the economy, think he's done a good job on policy, but just don't like him and don't plan to vote for him again. I mean, is is the problem his personality? Is it? I, I get the sense that that debate could have been the end for him in the sense that a lot of people just looked at his performance that all the interrupting and just said, I can't take four more years of this.
0: Is that possible? I mean, absolutely. And, you know, I think that's why Trump missed an opportunity to even in a virtual setting to get back on the debate stage with Joe Biden, because, you know, we've seen presidents have bad debates initially, right? Obama had one in 2012. Ronald Reagan had one and they bounced back in the next debate. And so over the course of the the three debates, you know, it wasn't a whole whole lot of, of change overall. And so I think that was an opportunity for Trump to, to show back up and be a different Trump, perhaps a better Trump, talking to voters instead of talking directly to Joe Biden. But he's gonna have to wait, assuming that third debate even happens now, which I think it's probably, you know, I think it's maybe a 50-50 proposition that would even happens. He's gonna have to wait until the very end to get that chance. So it, it's quite possible. I mean, but that's an, another interesting thing that, you know, Sean Trendy was just talking about this the other day uh, on our podcast. You know, his, his job approval rating is back up to 44.7%, but he's at 42%. So who are these, who are these voters who approve of Donald Trump, approve of the job he's doing, but are not going to vote for him? Are they just lying? Are they just saying they're undecided? Um, when in fact, maybe they they already have decided that they're going to vote for him? Or is it a situation where, like you said, Mark, they like his policies and they like the job he does on those policies, but they just don't like his style and the way he does it. And they're so turned off by it and exhausted by it. After four years, they're willing to change horses. We're not going to know the answer to that question until November 4th, or maybe longer, actually. But it is it is one of those interesting things, right? The other thing that Trump has in his favor, clearly, is that the economy is still the number one issue in most polls and the minds of voters. In the NBC News Wall Street Journal poll a couple of weeks ago, it was far and away the number one issue. In some other polls, it's closer to coronavirus and health care. But and on that issue, Trump has a still fairly sizable advantage in that Wall Street Journal poll. I think it was 12 or 14 points. But the problem is on everything else, he's losing by, you know, 20 or 25 points on issue of his handling of a coronavirus or his stance on health care. So there's a lot of different things that are cut in different ways in this election. And I think we have to be careful to suggest, you know, you know I keep reading these stories like it's over, <laughs> you know, it's, it's done. I don't think it's done just yet.
2: As you point out, he still has a lead on the economy, but it's shrunk a lot uh, over the past year. I mean, he had a... Uh... Plus 16 net rating on the economy in March before COVID fully hit. And now it's, you know, almost within the margin of error. How has Biden sort of closed the gap on the economy, which is sort of the key issue in this election?
0: So I think what Biden has done very shrewdly is basically plagiarize Trump. He's in Ohio, he's in Pennsylvania, he's in Michigan. He's talking about building American, buying American, you know, incentivizing companies. I mean, it's it's a very much a sort of It could, in fact, be the speeches he's given could be Trump speeches. And he's really muddied the waters, I think, on that issue to a point where, despite his long history in Washington and his tenure as vice president, I think voters find him sort of credible when he talks like that. But going back to Trump, his job approval on the economy is still over 50. And then his job approval on coronavirus, which is the other main issue in this election, is at 42 And he's underwater by about 14 points on that. So you got a lot of different cross currents of things that, you know, what voters think are important in this election and and who they think would do a better job of handling it.
1: Tom, there are these ineffable things that that we've been talking about, you know, the unknowables. Uh, people like to talk about shy Trump voters, people who are embarrassed to admit that they're supporting Donald Trump. Believe me, I know plenty of them. You know, you and I sort of talked a little bit briefly about this piece that I wrote where I said that I hadn't voted for Trump last time and was actually considering this time, because I think the Democrats have been radicalized, there are really people on both sides of that camp. My brother-in-law voted for Trump last time and thinks he's too unpresidential and isn't going to vote for him again. How do we begin to get a <laughs> grip on these kinds of things? Or is this just a you know wait and see kind of a, a challenge?
0: I, I think it is in some sense a wait and see. I mean, that's one of the perhaps underrated pieces of the 2016 election And maybe one of the biggest differences between 2016 and 2020 is that Joe Biden is not Hillary Clinton. I mean, she was really, really unlikable. And there were just a whole host of voters, particularly in those upper Midwest states that may not have been, you know, Trump's favorability ratings were in the toilet as well, uh, but they just could not pull the lever for her. They could not stomach it. Joe Biden has a much longer history. He's much more of a known quantity. He's not, I think... The Trump campaign's efforts to paint him as, as this, you know, puppet of the radical left have been largely unsuccessful. I think they may have made a, made a little bit of headway in that regard. But and I think Biden, quite frankly, has probably helped them along the way just in the past week with his refusal to answer the, the court packing question. But, uh, you know, voters know Joe Biden and they just don't have the same reaction to him that they had to Hillary Clinton.
2: How does the Supreme Court affect the election? Because in 2016, Trump won voters for whom the Supreme Court was the top issue by 15 points, and a quarter of his voters said that was the most important issue. It was shaped enough to be less important, partly because of his success, because he had put two Supreme Court justices on, he had filled the uh, the federal courts. People th- sort of thought mission accomplished. And now all of a sudden, you've got this big Supreme Court fight right on the eve of the election. How, does, how do you see that uh, yeah. playing in the final vote? I mean,
0: you can argue this round or square. I mean, there there was an interesting piece in the week saying basically, you know, Amy Coney Barrett's gonna get confirmed and the transaction with Trump is done and and now voters can are are free to, you know, vote their conscience and vote because he's already fulfilled his promises. I, I don't know if I buy that argument. And again, I'll go back to the Supreme Court, the sort of stacking of the court question that you know, a lot of these folks are now facing. Steve Bullock just basically said he was gonna he was open to that, having that discussion. You know, that could be a potential boost in a close race out in Montana. So I think it's a real factor, perhaps more of a factor in the Senate races than in the presidential race. But I look, it's to your point, Mark, this is what a lot of people held their nose and voted for Trump for this specific reason. And he's delivered on it twice. And it'll be three times by the time election day rolls around, most likely. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it's got to be a positive for him. I don't know how, how to see it really any other way but how much of a positive, it's really hard to say.
1: So let's talk about the Senate. You know, the the presidential election is like the, the monster that swallowed everything. And the reality is that it's an interesting conversation to have. When you talk to a lot of people, very few people are hyper enthused about Biden. They're just hyper enthused about defeating Trump. And similarly, very few people are hyper, well, very few people we know are are hyper enthused about voting for Trump. They're more enthused about defeating what they think of as the radical left. But a lot of people feel really comfortable with the idea that if Biden became president, as long as the Senate was still in Republican hands, everything could be OK in the Republic. Is the Senate going to be in Republican hands?
0: I don't know. It's really, really close. So we have a, we have a, I know, sorry. Uh, Crystal ball says cloudy. Can she avoid voting for Trump? (laughs) (laughs) I I think, look, we have a feature on real clear politics called the no toss up map. We have that for the electoral college and we have it for the Senate map and it, you know, allocates these States based on where our, our averages are right now. And so if you look at that as of today, and it's been this way for some time, Democrats would pick up four seats a net gain of four seats, which is what they would need to take control of the Senate. Uh, They'd win Arizona, they'd win Colorado, they would win Iowa, they would win Maine, and they would win North Carolina. So I'll say a couple things. Number one, North Carolina, I mean, we're waiting to see more uh, data on that. I tweeted earlier, I said, I did not have COVID versus adultery on my bingo card there. Uh, (laughs) You know, that is looking like a situation where we'll have to see that's going to test the proposition of whether voters in the era of Donald Trump, whether voters care about that sort of thing. I tend to think in North Carolina, they do, especially in a state with a, you know, it's got a decent veteran population. And this guy cheated on his wife with a uh, mistress who who was married to a veteran. So and a officer cheating with the wife of an enlisted officer. Which doesn't play well with the military, which sparked a, a probe. If I'm correct, right? The Army Reserve is now looking into that. Um, so not not a good situation for for Cal Cunningham or the Democrats. However, there's some polls showing the race pretty close in Georgia. There's some polls showing, uh, you know, Lindsey Graham's race and 57 million dollars that Jamie Harrison raised is just jaw dropping number. Joni Ernst is in a, a close, tight race in in Iowa. As I mentioned, in Montana. So, I think you know, somebody's going to have a good night, like one party or the other. Right. And if Democrats turn out and Joe Biden wins the presidency, he's going to win probably Arizona. He's going to win Colorado. He's going to win, may even win Iowa. He's going to bring a lot of these Senate candidates along with him. And in, in, if he does win the presidency, they only need three seats. So I think it's very likely if Joe Biden wins the election, that Democrats are going to take the Senate and vice versa. Right. That, uh, if Donald Trump wins, there's a good chance that a lot of these Republicans, he'll pull them along. A lot of these Republicans are actually running worse than Trump in these states, which again is sort of a head scratcher. You know, we're trying to figure out like what might be in play there. I mean, the only scenario really that seems super, super unlikely is that Trump wins the election and Democrats gain four Senate seats because if Trump's going to win the election, he's going to have to win Iowa and North Carolina and, and you know, a bunch of these states and to see, you know, for Democrats to, to oust incumbents in those states in that environment would seem to be sort of the least likely outcome uh, possible. But there is a chance, Danielle, to your question, which is, could Biden win the presidency and Republicans hold on to the Senate? Sure. That's a possibility.
1: And, and what about the House? You know, while, while we're talking about lost causes, it looks like Kevin McCarthy is going to be presiding over an even slimmer minority mm-hmm. in the court of Queen Nancy.
0: Yeah, I, I think the Cook Political Report, they changed their projections. Democrats will now pick up anywhere from five to 15, I think is what they're saying. So, yeah, it's going to be um, a few months ago. There was the idea that Republicans would gain a few seats, but not get what they needed to win back the majority. They'd, they'd fall a little bit short of where they needed to be, which I think is about 20 seats. But now it's looking like it might go in the other direction. And that could lead to. Again, this it's one of the things in 2018 that was sort of weird, right? We had the blue wave in the House and a sort of mini red wave in the Senate where Republicans picked up two seats in the Senate. So yeah, it, it's not looking good for, for Republicans um, in terms of winning back the House. Let's talk a little bit about
2: another sort of role reversal that's happening in this election, which is that. Trump in 2016, Trump won seniors pretty overwhelmingly. And now he's like trailing with seniors, whereas he didn't do so well with Hispanics. But now in Florida, he's got 50% of the Hispanic vote. It's a huge increase from last time around. So, you know, the Democrats spent four years, five years saying Trump is an anti-Hispanic bigot who wants to, you know, lock people up and deport them. And Hispanic support has increased. And then the seniors I don't know. Is it because he's making fun of Joe Biden's cognitive decline and people get offended by that? Is it because they're worried about covid? You know, how how are these reversals taking place?
0: Yeah, no, it's a good question. Look, I think Trump's going to win more African, more of the African-American vote than, you know, he won, I think, 8 percent in 2016. It was the most it was more than Mitt Romney. I think he's going to win more than that this time around. And I think he's going to win more Hispanic support. We're seeing that showing up, as you mentioned, particularly in Florida, among the Cuban-American vote in the Miami-Dade County. I think a lot of that has to do with the whole issue of sort of socialism that this campaign was sort of framed around for a long period of time. But you're right. I mean, seniors, that's a group that Trump won by, I think, seven points. And now he's trailing it anywhere from you know 10 to 15 to 20 points, depending on the polls. I think it absolutely has something to do with their view of how he's handled the COVID crisis, which has disproportionately impacted that group, right, in a negative way. And I'm not sure they feel like Trump has done a good job of handling it. And so it's been a very interesting shift. Now, can he win some of those voters back? Because they, again, were inclined to vote for him in 2016. We'll have to see. I mean, a lot of people are, we're keeping a close eye on that number, because if he doesn't, it's going to be really hard for him, I think, to win in a lot of these states, because those are the voters that, that turn out. At least they typically do, although we're, it's a different environment this time around.
1: So one of the things that you're talking about in the we shall see is especially interesting in this COVID year, because, of course, a lot of people have already decided. I mean, tell us your take on on this early voting, the mail-in voting, the you know voting by carrier pigeon, voting by semaphore. Wait, I'm just channeling Monty Python here. But what do you think of the whole controversy?
0: So. I still think we're going to see record turnout this year. I just think people are going to find their way to the polls one way or the other. You know, setting aside the, the issue of fraud and abuse, right, which the Trump campaign, I mean, I think both sides have been actively, actively undermining the process, the legitimacy of the process. Trump does it often. But, you know, Democrats, I mean, Joe Biden just said the only way I can lose is chicanerate the polls, said that the other day, a couple of weeks ago, they were talking about, you know, Republicans taking, you know, post office boxes off the street. I mean, this crazy conspiracy theory. So, so both sides are doing it. But even setting aside, whether you believe that or don't believe it, just the idea that a lot of these states, and these poor county clerks are going to be dealing with, you know, five, 10, 15 times the number of absentee and mail-in ballots they've ever handled before. We've seen the you know, naked ballot controversy in Pennsylvania. I mean, it, it is going to be, train wreck is too kind of a description. And I think this is going to be awful. I think we're going to see a rejection rate on these ballots. It's going to be astronomical. I think we're going to see a close election, which means there'll be legal challenges. I mean, I think it's going to be, I hate to sound sort of, dark and pessimistic about it, but, and especially in this sort of heightened environment. And we've already seen, these. you know, we're going to have stories zipping around the internet about ballots found in, you know, in closets and in rivers. And we're already seeing that, right? In a post-election environment where a lot of these states, they can't even start opening the ballots until election day, or even when, when the polls close on election night. So we're going to be counting for days and days. It just strikes me as... Almost an unavoidable fact that it is going to be just hellish, you know. The only way that that it's not is if it is if it is a blowout. If it, you know, if, if Donald Trump loses Texas or Georgia and some of these other states, and so ten thousand votes in Wisconsin don't matter, then fine. That would be you know a situation where I think, but I don't think it's going to be like that. I think we're down to the same states. It's going to be close, close enough where some of this stuff is going to matter. But we'll. We'll see. I mean, if the election were held today, the polls suggest it wouldn't be that close in some of those states. Again, even if Donald Trump overperformed, he'd probably lose by enough in some of these states where it wouldn't trigger recounts and things of that nature. But um, if it does tighten us, we could be in for a really rough ride.
2: Putting aside, as you say, chicanery and fraud, which I think that both candidates are, that's not the main issue. I mean, just absentee ballots as generally have a very high failure rate. Just for non- you nefarious know, reasons you know people fill the correctly they don't there's no election poll worker there to explain to them how to fill out the ballot properly or how get that they don't get the signature right they don't you know I think there was a MIT study that uh, in the 2008 election that you know absentee ballots had a filler rate of up, up to 21 and Democrats are using them a lot higher rate than Republicans so I would think that that might have been a really bad bet on their part that it could be very well that Trump could win on election night and then they could be making a surge in the in the absentee ballots, but then a lot of their ballots start getting discounted and all of a sudden they're the ones who are not supporting a peaceful transition of power.
0: <laughs> Do you see that as a uh, No, totally. I mean, I think that's exactly right. Um, there are, and, you know, we've seen the stories about, you know, the Biden team is lawyered up. I mean, they are lawyered up. They're going to go in there. You know, Hillary advised him to not concede under any circumstances. <laughs> You know, and obviously Trump's like urging his 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 supporters to go in and be poll watchers, and I, I think it's going to be bad. I really do because you're right. I mean, in addition to the the absentee ballots, the rejection rate. I mean, we saw in 2000 what democracy is not pretty when we get up close and look at hanging chads and stuff like that. And we're going to be we could potentially be doing that in multiple states, and arguing over things like as you mentioned, you know, you didn't get a witness, you didn't sign it correctly. You've, you know, filled this out wrong. You didn't put it in the right envelope. I mean, there are hundreds of ways that these ballots could go wrong and be rejected. And you can bet that either side is going to want to give an inch on this stuff. And it's like I said, I I don't know where it goes from there. I mean, hopefully the institutions and the leadership and the parties will are able to sort of you know, withstand whatever is coming our way. Because I think both sides, there's going to be half the country, basically. It's going to feel like the election was stolen from them, regardless of who wins. Um, so I think it's I think it's not going to be good.
1: Well, that was depressing. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> well, I think what we need to do is we need to have you on after the election for a postmortem about how where, where we went wrong this time. Well, hopefully it'll
0: be about how wrong I was about the aftermath and, and how peaceful and loving the transit it was like you know we're living in a kumbaya world on november 10th (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes, indeed. That's certainly what it's going to be like. Listen, um, Tom, you know, first of all, we didn't say this and I'll, I'll say it in the introduction uh, when we introduce you, but your site is so indispensable to all of us. I know very few people who don't start their morning looking on real clear politics and hitting refresh throughout the day. So thank you for that and for this intensely <laughs> depressing and dispiriting <laughs> conversation about our presidential election.
0: Well, thank you for having me. It was, uh, it was a pleasure to join you. And thanks for the kind words about RCP. Click early and click often. We
1: will.
0: <laughs> we do Take every care. day. Take care. Talk Great. to you soon. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye-bye.
2: All right, so let's talk a little bit about these polls in closing, Danny. So, you know, you and I both worked for Jesse Helms for many years. And Helms always used to have a saying. Uh, I never, I said, I've never won a poll or rushed an election. <laughs> You know, there were a lot of people <laughs> who would not say to a pollster, I'm voting for Jesse Helm, but they did. And he won by increasing margins every single time. There's the, there's this phrase that has come out now, the shy Trump voter, you know, that the, maybe the polls are wrong this time because a lot of people aren't saying, I don't think Trump voters are shy. I think it's more of the middle finger Trump voter. That's <laughs> like, I'm not going to, yeah, yeah, I'm voting for him and I'm not telling you. And I'm by the way, I'm not even answering my phone when the pollster calls right now. The question is, how, I mean, the polls were obviously very off in 2016. How off are they now? And is that shy Trump effect, that middle finger Trump effect, uh, whatever you want to call it, big enough to make up the gaps in the polling that we're seeing right now?
1: Just based on the conversation we just had with Tom, I've got to say there've got to be some facts that change uh, because there aren't enough shy voters to overcome his deficit at this point, in my humble opinion. He's got to make some smarter decisions. You know, I don't know if the man has it in him because every time I think he can listen to the wise suggestions of Mark Thiessen, he comes out and listens to the unwise suggestions of, I have no idea who that little devil on his left shoulder. So I, I... I find it very hard to believe that if he continues on the course he has been on over the last weeks, that he will be able to surprise us as indeed, you know, we surprise. I heard someone, I think I even quoted this already on the podcast, but it was so perfect. I'm going to quote it again. In fact, Chuck Todd said it to me. He loved it so much. Said, even Jesus only walked on water once.
2: Well, I'll tell you, I mean, it's just so many lost opportunities uh, in the last few weeks. You know, he obviously recognized at some point late in the process with COVID uh, that his briefings were hurting. And so he went out and started giving these briefings that were very factual, very restrained, wasn't getting into fights with reporters and all the rest of it. And so you thought, He's getting it. He realizes he's got to win over these reluctant Trump voters, this 20 percent of voters who voted for him but said they didn't like him. These voters who now say they approve of his policies, but they don't approve of him and they're not voting for him. Those are gettable votes. And I, I started getting hope that he realized that he was going to win those people over. And then the debate happened. And, I mean, somebody had given him the idea, or maybe he did it himself, that the key to winning the debate was to get Joe Biden to stumble. And so you just keep attacking him and attacking him and throwing him off his game and he'll eventually say something. You know, it was just a terrible mistake, strategic he didn't, mistake.
1: He, have a, he, he didn't have a chance to get a word in edgewise. Yeah, Where he the hell was Joe Biden
2: him. going to stumble? Yeah, you got to let him talk to stumble, right? Um, exactly. and, and so, you know, that was just a, and you see the polls show that, I mean, even there was a remember which whether it was the Wall Street Journal, but there was a poll of Florida and Pennsylvania voters, and even a third of Trump supporters didn't like his behavior in the debate. 11% strongly disapproved of. Um, so that was a huge lost opportunity. And then he, then he gets COVID and a moment of sympathy a moment where the whole country was rallying around him, people who didn't even want to vote for him in mean, know, normal Americans, not the ones in Washington who are just like, you know, Trump derangement but normal Americans who are not Trump supporters were praying for him and wanting him to come through. Opportunity to sort of, you know, to be, to come out and, and be a uniting figure and use his diagnosis as a chance to sort of turn the COVID issue around and didn't, didn't seize it. So, and then, you know, has another chance to redo the debate and just walks away from it. I don't see him making course corrections that need that he needs to and you know Donald Trump is going to be Donald Trump this is how it is Uh, he's not going to change and as I said he may on election day we may both he may win this election and we may look at it and say you know what He, he knew what he was doing he I mean none of us thought he was going to win in 2016 and had lots of advice for him and he didn't take it and he won and so you know if he wins you know, he's uh, he's uh, he's a genius. Uh, if he loses, he's responsible for de- literally handing the Republic over to its destroyers. And it's just so high stakes, it's just terrifying.
1: And on that cheery, uplifting <laughs> note, everyone, remember you have just about three weeks in which to cast your ballots, make your decision, and, uh, and respect the, the rights that have been granted to you as a citizen of the United States. Not everybody in the world gets to vote. Get out there and do it.
2: Amen. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehellataei.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen.
1: That's Mark with a C.